Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Chad. For those of you, I see some faces that I maybe haven't been able to connect with for a while and, and maybe a few faces that I haven't met. Some new new folks uh, since the last time I've been here. It's been a while uh, since I've been here and it's good to be here today. Um, <clears throat> Pastor David and I have been uh, going through the book of James down in Lapine. And so uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. Seems to be kind of a theme of the day, but um, we're going to talk about trials today, trials, tests, and temptations. Um, <clears throat> James starts out uh, in his epistle with an encouragement to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I don't know about you, but I don't often associate trials and joy. Those are two things that I probably wouldn't put in the same sentence. Uh, yet James does it, and he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of, of various kinds. And so, so right off the bat, this is kind of, it kind of boggles the mind. Like, what do you, what is he trying to tell us? Why, why would we count it all joy to go through trials? And, and hopefully today, uh, by the time we're done, we'll see that, uh, that God gives us the ability uh, to have some joy, uh, sometimes in the most difficult of circumstances. We're going to be looking today, uh, at verses 12. Uh, through uh, the end of the section uh, 19, uh, or I'm sorry, 18, 12 to 18. James starts out in uh, chapter uh, verse 12 saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. And so we have to do a little bit of work to define a few of these terms here. And so uh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What does James mean when he says blessed? Is the man. What do you think about when you think of blessing? What do you think about when you think about uh, being a person who's blessed? <clears throat> we might say because we live in the greatest place in the world that we're blessed. Uh, you might say because uh, you've worked a career and, and now have a comfortable retirement that you've been blessed. Uh, you might say uh, because you have a job that you love. If you haven't retired yet, you might say I'm blessed because I love what I do. And, and those things are certainly in view, but when James here talks about being blessed, he's not talking about just being happy. He's not talking about um, being fulfilled in life. He's talking about uh, being complete. He's talking about not lacking anything and not necessarily material things. He's talking about because you know Christ, because you have heard and believed the truth of the gospel, that you are blessed, that you're fulfilled, that you're complete, not lacking of anything without regard to what you do or don't have in this life. So, so let's understand what he said. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's talking about if you are here today professing faith in Christ, regardless of how comfortable you think your life is or isn't, you are blessed. You are blessed. When he talks about remaining steadfast under trial, he's talking about being faithful. He's talking about persevering during a trial. Now, you probably know as, as well as I do, none of us are immune from the difficulties that this life has to offer. There are people out there who would preach uh, what we would call a false gospel that would say that, that when you come to Christ, that, that you don't have to walk through the difficulties of life. And all we have to do is uh, read our Bible and ask, how did that work out for Paul? Paul walked through a lot of difficulties. How did that work out for the disciples, how did that work out for Jesus? Jesus himself even said, they, they hated me, they're going to hate you. In other words, like it's going to be hard, this road of Christianity. <clears throat> so we're not immune from trials, but 
But James is encouraging us that as we know Christ, as we're blessed to know Christ, that there's also a blessing in remaining steadfast under trial, in persevering under trials, and remaining faithful to Christ in our trials. Because, he says, when you have stood the test. And here's what is an inference here in the original language. When he says stood the test, what he's saying is that the test is necessary in order for you to persevere. If there was no test, there would be nothing for you to persevere. If there was no test, if there was no trial, if there was no difficulty, there would be no call to remain steadfast. And so the test, the trial that we deal with is necessary for our faith to be genuine. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I've experienced this in my life and uh, currently I'm experiencing in my life. As we walk through trials, we can come out the other side of trials. And even in the midst of trials, we can come to this realization that like there, there's a genuineness or a reality to my faith that I see only by walking through hard things. That there's a genuineness that we can see to our faith that only comes out when our faith is tested. And so we don't begrudge trials. We, we necessarily wouldn't wish trials upon ourselves or anybody else. But as Christians who believe and understand the truth of the gospel, we understand that trials are a necessary thing for us. I think of Paul in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8.28, something I meditate on often. All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And that doesn't mean that everything is good, right? There, there are bad things in life. There are bad things that happen to us. <clears throat> but the Apostle Paul promises us that if you belong to Christ then those bad things, even those things, even the worst of things, God will use for your good. I sleep at night because that's true. I can lay my head on the pillow because I know that I know that I know that's true. It's not true for the person who's not a follower of Christ. It doesn't say all things work together for the good of everybody everywhere all the time. Things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So that's a promise reserved for the Christian. Because God, God is in the business of redemption. God can take the worst of things and redeem the worst of things into the best of things for you and for me, Christian. What, what a comfort that is. And then James goes on to say that once we've remained steadfast, once we've stood the test, the necessary test for our faith, he says that you'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those that love him. When we think about this crown of life, you, you might think of a king who's got a, a big gold shiny crown, maybe with some jewels in it. But that's not the kind of crown that James is talking about. He's not talking about the crown of a ruler, the crown of authority, or a crown even that represents power. He's talking about literally, he's talking about a laurel wreath. Think about uh, athletes in ancient times. They would present them with a laurel wreath once they finished their race. This is what James is talking about is more of a more of a laurel wreath that says you made it to the end. Here, here's your reward for making it to the end. And not in the sense of a participation trophy. Like there's no participation trophies in Christianity, right? We, we get those in the world today. Uh, and I'm sure you all have your feelings on participation trophies. This is not what James is talking about. This is the due reward for an athlete who's persevered through grueling circumstances. And he's completed his event or his task. And he gets to the end of it. He gets presented with the due reward for his perseverance. This is what James is talking about. 
And this credit of life that he's talking about, it's promised to those who love God. And so we know that when God promises anything, like it's a certainty. When you promise something or I promise something, there's a chance that we might back out of our promise. It's probably happened to all of us. When God promises something, it's a certainty. And so God is promising to those with certainty, to those who love him, who stand the test, who persevere in a trial, that they're going to get the crown of life, their due reward for persevering and having the genuineness of their faith tested. That he promises it to those who love him. Now, this is an important thing that we understand. We have to understand why we love God. If you sit here today and you would say that I love, I love God. You love God only because our Bible tells us that he loved us. We love God because he first loved us. God initiated the relationship that you and I have with him. We didn't initiate anything. We we didn't come to a moment one day where just a light bulb came on and says, oh, I need to love God. God initiated. And we love him only because he first loved us. And so, so you put all of this together. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. It seems like God is doing a lot of the work here, right? We're blessed because we know Christ. We're steadfast because we know Christ. We persevere under trial because we know Christ. We stand the test because we know Christ. We receive the crown of life because we know Christ. God has promised this and we love him because he loves us. The only thing that, that here is for us, like, like we, we have to walk through difficult things sometimes in order to be reminded of this reality. And, and so here's a little bit of a glimpse of how we can count it all joy when we walk through various trials. Because the fact that our faith is being tested, it means that, that we belong to Christ. It means that, that he's mindful of us, that he's paying attention to us. That he's giving us what we need to walk through the trials that are necessary for our growth. Necessary for uh, the deepening of our faith. Because think about it, if your faith has never been tested, how do you know that it's real? If you've never walked through something and you're able to get to the other side of it and look back and say, here's how God met me in this difficulty, how, how do you know that your faith is genuine? You, you might not know. And so we can say, praise God for the difficulties that this life brings because we're Christians and because we know that he doesn't abandon us in them. As a matter of fact, he's got a very real and specific purpose in the difficulties that come our way. There is nothing, our Bible tells us, that happens anywhere. The entirety of creation, not not even just the earth, but the entirety of the universe that does anything outside of the watchful eye of God. We, we would say that God is sovereign, that he's in control of everything. Nothing happens anywhere that he's not in control of. There's no moment throughout time and history where God is scratching his head thinking, what happened over there? That just doesn't happen. There's no atom or molecule that does anything that God doesn't say, yep. And so what does that mean for you and me? It means that in the most difficult of our circumstances, that that it's, for the Christian, again, inside of the watchful eye of God. James goes on to say in verse 13, 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, it seems like, just for context, um, you know, James starts out this section, count it all joy, when you walk through various trials, and then he talks about if you lack wisdom, ask God. He talks about if you get in these moments of uh, pridefulness or arrogance about your station in life, remember uh, who you are and what Christ has done for you. Uh, he talks about, again, being steadfast under trial. And he seems to switch gears here and say, and when you're tempted, remember remember these things. Uh, and, and if you're like me, you read this and think, well, what does this have to do with what he's been talking about up, up to this point? And it has very much to do with what he's talking about. When he talks about trials, he's talking about outside circumstances affecting your life. Right? There are certain things in this world that are just beyond our control. Uh, think of, you know, death, disease, things, things like that that we just don't have control over. They're thrust upon us. And, and we're all of a sudden forced to deal with circumstances that, that really were, were outside of our control. So, so James talks about those things as trials. When he talks about temptations, he's talking about kind of internally how you respond to these things in a way that really is within your control. How, how do you handle it when you get devastating news? How do you handle it when things don't go your way? Trials are outward. Temptations can be inward. An inward enticement. Each person is tempted, it says, when he is lured. And in the original language, that word lured means a, a domination, a dominable force or desire. So James is reminding us that, that when you're tempted to handle trials in a way that is not godly, in a way that in that moment that, that you might say, I'm, I'm, I don't need to hear the gospel right now. It's because there's a dominable force inside of you, a desire inside of you that's luring you away from Christ. When he says, you're lured, he says that you're enticed. And that word enticed means a hypnotic attraction. And the idea of the original language is, is when you see an animal who is, who is looking at some bait that you set out for them, maybe the hunters in the room. Um, you know, if, if you bait your animals and the animal comes across that bait and they can't do anything except go for the bait. That, that's what James is talking about when he uh, is talking about being enticed. And that enticement comes by your own desire. Now, our desires are not necessarily all negative all of the time, right? We, we have some noble desires as human beings. But we can take even our good desires and even our noble desires and take them to a sinful place. Right, we maybe have a we might have a desire for to see justice in the world, for example. But we can take this desire for justice, which is a right desire, and we can go about achieving justice in ways that are not right. Okay. Um, but we have to realize what James is reminding us here is that we do have desires in us. We have temptations that when trials come. We have desires in us that would cause us to move away from Christ in those trials. He's also reminding us that it's you and I that are culpable for our own sin. We're culpable when we walk away from Christ. We're responsible for it. We have an ownership of it. We can't say that God tempted me and I had no choice but to give in to this particular sinful desire. We can't say that. Because God doesn't tempt anyone. He's not evil. 
James would remind us that, that when, when I fall off into temptation, it's because of my own wicked desires that come from inside of me that originate with me. It's because in those moments I choose not to believe the truth of the gospel. And it pulls me away from Christ. We see this clearly the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. God created everything. He created the heavens, created the earth, the birds, the fish, the bugs, everything. The moon, the sun, the stars, the seas, the plants, everything. And for a brief moment, we don't know how long, but for a brief moment in time, creation was in perfect harmony with the Creator before sin entered the world. God told Adam and Eve, here's everything for your enjoyment. Here's everything for your pleasure. Have dominion over the earth. Have babies and fill it with people. And just take care of it. Like that was their mandate. Everything's yours, God said, except for the fruit of this one tree over here. And you know the story. right? We don't want anything in our lives so badly until somebody tells us we can't have it. And then it's the thing that we want the most, right? It's our human nature. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the one tree that God said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Because of their own sinful desires. And what we see clearly with the first humans to ever roam the earth is that they had desires in them that lured them away from their Creator. And apart from God's intervention, we would be given over fully to our sinfulness. And again, you, you know the story. So they, they ate the fruit, they, they entered, they rebelled, creation rebelled against the Creator, sin entered the world. And from that moment, we see that God had a plan in place in Genesis chapter 3 for one day this is all going to be rectified. Well, one day we're, we're going to, it's just all going to be fixed. And this story of redemption that we read in our Bible from Genesis to Revelation is unfolding and we're in the middle of it unfolding even now as we speak. And so we see apart from God's intervention, the sinful desires of humanity. And James reminds us that when sin conceives, uh, or desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. Sin brings forth death. And he's giving us this analogy of, of a physical birth. Okay, think about what, what, what's a baby is conceived. Once two people conceive a baby, we're not going to get into a biology lesson here, but once two people conceive a baby, like nothing stops that. Like nature just takes its course, right? Uh, apart from some human intervention to stop it. But, but if you just let things naturally run its course, there's a process that unfolds, right? Life is conceived. Eventually that life is born once the conception has run its course. So conception to gestation to birth. And James is comparing that to desire, sin, and death. Nothing is going to stop that course of desire, sin, and death without intervention. Right? We, we need the redeeming work of Christ in order to rectify that. It's mindful of Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I hope it doesn't feel like I'm just piling on bad news after bad news. I mean, I kind of am, but there's going to be some good news to come, so just bear, bear with me in this. But there's a whole lot of bad news here, Right? The Apostle Paul calls us children of wrath 
by our nature, like we were born as children of wrath, like all of humanity, we all share that in common. We all share in common that, that we enter this life marked as children of wrath because of our sin. And that sin brings death, like we're born into death. And we need intervention in order for that to change. And we have a responsibility because of our own wicked desires for this death that's at work in us. But we move on to some good news here in verse 16 of James chapter 1. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is where we get to unpack some of the good news to counteract the bad news. So remember, James is talking about trials here. He's talking about temptations. He's talking about tests. He's reminding us that that we're not immune as Christians from the difficulties that this life brings. He's reminding us that the way that we respond to those difficulties can be sinful when in those moments that we want to walk away from Christ. And then he closes out this section about trials reminding us, he says, don't don't be deceived, in fact. So so not just a reminder, he's reminding us that that we have an enemy whose desire is to deceive us. We, We have an adversary whose desire, as we walk through trials, is to get us to walk away from Christ. He says, don't, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from God. And again, you kind of wonder, like, what's James doing? He's talking about trials. He's talking about tests. He's talking about temptations. And then he's like, every good gift is from God. Well, what are you talking about? And what he's saying is that these things, these trials, these tests, these temptations are, in fact, for the Christian, good gifts from God. We we don't often look at them that way. How do you pray when you pray to God? If you're like me, you, you probably give God your list. Here, here are you know the 48 ways that you can run the universe better. Just change this. Do this differently. Make this thing go away. Right? That, that's how we pray, isn't it? But if it's true that God is sovereign, if it's true that nothing happens anywhere in the universe outside of his watchful eye, how silly is it that we pray and give him our list of all the ways that he could do better? It's kind of silly, isn't it? <laughs> We don't see, for example, the Apostle Paul praying that God would change his circumstances. We don't see Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he was about to go to the cross, he had a moment where he went off into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And do you remember what Jesus prayed? There's this hard thing that's coming that, like, if there's any other way that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish other than this hard thing that I'm about to do, tell me now. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Jesus, in that moment, didn't give the Father, like, Father, here's, here's a way that we could do this better. <laughs> like, he just submitted to the will of the Father. Right? That, that changes the way that we pray, doesn't it, as we think about that. <clears throat> James is reminding us that the difficult things that we walk through as Christians are, in fact, good gifts from God. The things themselves may not be good, But the fact that God is with us in them is a good gift. It's a good gift that comes down from the Father. And the Father only gives good gifts. The Father does not, he doesn't give his children bad gifts. 
right? Even us as earthly fathers, we don't, we don't give our children bad gifts, right? That would be cruel of us if we gave our children bad. Oh, I, I know my daughter's going to hate this. So I'm, I'm going to get this for her birthday. We don't do that. How, how much more does, does God in heaven, how much more will he give good gifts to the children that he loves? And James is reminding us that every good and perfect gift is from God. He's reminding us that our faith is not just about the end product. Right? So sometimes us Christians, we're, we're pretty fixated on heaven. We should be. Don't hear me say that we shouldn't be. But, but that's kind of all like, okay, I, I got my ticket punched. Right? I'm, I'm going to end up in heaven when this is all said and done. But James, talking about these trials and that good gifts come from God, I think what he's inferring here is that, that it's not just about getting our ticket to heaven punched, that there's some special things that happen in the process between now and then that God works out in the life of the believer. And those things are good. And when we begrudge those things, we're begrudging God and his work in us. James tells us that there's no changing. The father of heavenly lights, he says, there's no variation, there's no shadow due to change. I have a, I have a fire pit in my backyard and sometimes the guys come over and Depending on what time of day they come over, we, we might start off kind of over here in the grass where there's shade. And, and we've got, you know, lawn chairs. And there's, you know, six of us huddled up under this small patch of shade <laughs> until the shade moves over to the fire pit where we can, you know, kind of spread around and not have to be, you know, huddled so close together because it shifts and it changes. It changes. And James is telling us that, that God casts a shadow that doesn't change. Hebrews 13 tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 that spoke everything into existence simply by saying, let it be. And the God that we read about in the book of Revelation that comes and makes all the wrong things right once for all. He doesn't change. In the middle, there's no changing. That It's the same God. So the same God that loves us, the same God that gives us good gifts is the same God who walks through our trials with us. And while you and I might change, he doesn't. He doesn't, his word doesn't change, and his promises don't change. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He doesn't change. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We've already touched upon this. We, we come to God because, first and foremost, he came to us. God stepped into human history and into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Because we needed intervention in our sinful state. We needed somebody to do for us that which we could and would never do for ourselves. And God did that. He did that for us of his own will. In other words, because it's of his own will, we could say that it pleased him to do that. It pleases him to be good to humanity. It pleases God to be good to those who belong to him. He brought us forth of his own will, and there's a way that he brought us forth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We, we've been born again because we have heard the word of truth. And, and God has given it to us to respond to the word of truth. The, the big story of the Bible is that God so loved the world. You know the scripture. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then James 
concludes this section by telling us that we should be a kind of a first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? I'm not a farmer at all. I have zero experience growing anything. But it would seem to me that when you talk about first fruits, like like the, the cream of the crop, the best part of the harvest is the first fruits. And the fact that there's first fruits means that there's going to be maybe second fruits and third fruits and so on and so on. And so, so I think this idea of calling us as believers a kind of first fruits of his creatures is an indication that there's more to come. That there's a harvest to be had and there's more to come. First fruits are first, like they're not last, right? They're first because there's more to follow. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, I, I, I lumped all this bad news to you guys, that we were born into death, we're born marked as children of wrath, like all of mankind. The Apostle Paul goes on after that section to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith in this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so let's kind of wrap this up and bring this to a close here. James is telling us that we can, we can experience joy in the midst of trials. And there's this thing that comes into trials, our own temptations, our own sinful desires, that, that's going to mess up our joy and it's going to try to pull us away from Christ. But he reminds us that every good gift, including the difficult thing that you're walking through right now, Christian, is from the Father of heavenly lights, who doesn't change. And he brought you forth, not because of your doing, but because of his doing. And it was his good pleasure to do so. I mean, holy cow. Is there no more good news than this? That, that, that as we walk through this life, that God is with us. That God is mindful. And not only is he mindful, but maybe even prescribing some of the most difficult things that we walk through for his glory and for our good. Only God can do that. Only God can take the most ugly of things, the most difficult of things, and bring redemption in a way that glorifies him and is good for us. I don't possess that power. You don't possess that power. Only God possesses the power to do that. And so I hope today that as you consider your own trials, and we heard you know some of you share about some just hard things that you're walking through, I hope that you're encouraged that your hard thing is not outside of the watchful eye of God. That your hard thing is testing in you and proving a genuineness of your faith as you get through it that is for your good. And not only is it for your good, but it's necessary, necessarily for your good and ultimately for God's glory as he redeems things. And there's going to come a day, as I've said, when all of the wrong things in this world are going to be made right. And we long for that day. Especially if you're in the midst of a hard thing, you might long for that day a little bit more than you normally do, right? But the day is coming where God is going to make all of the wrong things right. And we will get to enjoy him forever. What an amazing truth that is. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful uh, to be here, thankful that we could gather together, that we could see one another and look one another in the eye and um, just have physical uh, interaction with one another. We're thankful that you provide a place for us to do that. We're thankful that we live uh, in a place where we could uh, do this um, day in and day out, week in and week out. We're thankful that you've given us your word and that you've given us minds and an ability to understand what it is that you would say to us. And so I pray today uh, for all of us that we would leave here encouraged, knowing that um, for those of us who profess faith in Christ, that you're in control of everything that happens in our life and that you're working ultimately for our good and ultimately for your glory. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.